Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 110 of the Energy Talks podcast, and I'm very excited to talk to my guest today, who is Dr. James Frith. He is the principal at Volta Energy Technologies, but I first got to know him a couple of three years ago in his role at Bloomberg NEF, where he was head of battery storage analysis. And it, he's given me a lot of insights into the global battery industry over the over the years. But now he's in a different uh, part of the industry. He's evaluating uh, startups and other companies for who are in the battery space and they're look and and they're investing in them. So welcome to the interview, James. Hi, Markham. Great, great to be here and 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 to um yeah to be discussing kind of the battery industry. Um, again, as you said, we've we've talked about it many times over the years, uh, and uh, you know I certainly always find them um, very kind of interesting, and stimulating conversations. Well, we'll very do our very best to stimulate the conversation today. Now, James, before we get into the industry, you've got uh, a PhD in electrochemistry, and I want to talk a little bit about how you got to Volta Energy Technologies. How as how do kids grow up thinking? You know, I want to be an electrochemist. How did you get to be an electrochemist? Tell us that story. It's it's a, yeah, it's a great question. And um, in in fact, I think as a child, I had no idea what an electrochemist was. Uh, and and to be fair, I think until the third year of my undergraduate degree, I, again, I had no idea what an electrochemist was. Um, but. I say, you know, slightly out of luck, um, I was placed on a, a research project in my third year of my undergraduate, um, where I was in an electrochemistry lab, looking at new types of energy storage devices, and specifically lithium-ion batteries. So it all kind of happened um, by accident, if you like, that the, the timing worked, um, where suddenly there was this, this project working on the, the, I think I had selected green energy or something like that and they just stuck me on this battery project in an electrochemistry lab and so my um kind of interest in in electrochemistry and batteries both started at that same time and and to me really the two topics are combined but of course actually electrochemistry can be used in in so many different areas and is really i would say quite fundamental to a lot of the climate tech research that's going on today. We see electrochemistry being important in the development of um, the hydrogen industry, both on the kind of fuel cell side of things and also the electrolysis side. Um, also, a lot of carbon capture and storage systems are exploring using um, electrochemistry. So to me, electrochemistry is, is, is really the wonder tool of the chemistry universe where you can quite precisely control the reactions that are going on um, in a cell and, and, and how far to completion you want those reactions um, to go. Now, there's, there's obviously a lot of nuance that I won't, I won't go into today, but, um, you know, you. I really Thank do you, by think, the way. Uh, 
<laughs> my pleasure my pleasure yeah i, I won't uh, i won't bore you with a uh, an electric chemistry course but um you know it's it's just incredible the amount of agility it provides and 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 what you can do it do with it um you know and so i i i see it as being the the underrepresented branch of chemistry that should really get a lot more attention than it does compared to let's say inorganic or organic and, and physical chemistry well we'll do our very best on this podcast to raise the image of electrochemist chemistry and electrochemists um i interviewed an electrochemist oh two three years ago uh, who had been involved in the uh, early years of the lithium-ion battery, and I, I, his name escapes me right at the moment. But the the point he made was that electrochemistry has only really been around for like forty years or so. Is that the case? I mean, it's a fairly new branch of science. It, yes, I guess in the in the kind of form that we know it today, um, it's it's fair to say perhaps forty years. But you know, in in, in reality, if you go all the way back to Alessandro Volta, he was the first electrochemistry, or sorry, electrochemist. He was using um, kind of inorganic materials to create voltage and current. And, and that is, you know, essentially one branch of electrochemistry. You're using materials to, to kind of cr create electricity. You can also do it the other way around where you can use electricity to kind of um, create different materials. And, and actually we can think of that as, um, you know, on one side, uh, kind of discharging and on the other side, charging a battery. It's all about the flow of electrons and, and, and what that does to a reaction. So, you know, well, where modern electrochemistry, uh, you know, could be cited for being around for, for, for 40 years, you know, really since that kind of 1960s period, I guess, you know, I would actually say it goes back much further into the 1800s. Yeah, sure. I mean, we had, you know, electric cars uh, 120 years ago that used lead acid batteries, right? Which, so that would be exactly. a form of electrochemistry. Exactly, precisely. Um, you know, I think it's when you start to think about how electrochemistry is is being used in in other areas. So, you know, in um, drug discovery, for example, um, you know, there's also a lot of electrochemistry uh, or, or potential applications for electrochemistry in um, biosensing. So, you know, I think those branches of electrochemistry are, are are slightly newer, but I think that the fundamentals of electrochemistry certainly goes back to the 1800s, to those early um, voltaic piles, to, to lead acid batteries, you know, that were developed around the turn of the 19, uh, 1900s. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of different examples we could point to and, and hard to say exactly when electrochemistry as a term was was, was coined. But, you know, it, it, it certainly goes back um, more than 40 years, I would say. Now, as someone who knows very little about, well, almost nothing about electrochemistry, but has watched the battery industry grow over the years, but still is not, I, I have, I've done, I've interviewed you and others about the broader themes of, of, uh, of batteries, you know, cost per kilowatt hour and battery packs, that sort of thing. But the, the industry itself uh, I think is getting a lot more attention now because of the, well, the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. has, has focused attention on building uh, battery supply chains in North America. And uh, I know there were lots of journalists who went, uh, you know, what's the battery supply chain? I, it, literally, uh, whoever thought of, you know, critical minerals that go in to get refined and processed into battery metals, and then they get made into components, and then they get put together in a, in a pack. 
and that's that's kind of how the the supply chain works right or what it looks like yeah precisely exactly you, you take the, the minerals out the ground process them into into metals and then salts today and then then yeah cathode material and and into the packs themselves um and it's uh, it, it it doesn't surprise me that um you know some folks would have said you know what 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 is a battery supply chain at the beginning of this year um, you know, I would think that mo mo most folks now in, in North America are, are probably kind of, um, you know, very aware and comfortable with, um, or, or maybe not comfortable, but aware of um, what a battery supply chain is. And more importantly, the kind of strategic value of onshoring those those supply chains. And, you know, certainly um, if I were to look back on 2022, I, I would have said the IRA is one of the um, the kind of fundamental change or, or is driving some of the fundamental changes that we're going to be seeing in the battery supply chain over the next um well until the end of this decade really I, I want to make a point here because this is becoming a bigger part of my journalism and it applies directly to the the battery industry and and that is uh the the um wielding by uh, governments at, at both the national and subnational level of what's called industrial policy. And basically that, uh, think of it as, as first a strategy and then the policy to implement the strategy where you want to build industrial clusters of things. And this is particularly germane because what we're doing is, I think in 2021, 2022, we can le legitimately say that the energy transition has triggered an economic transformation. We now are seriously in the business of building industries to make the components of the clean energy economy. This is, I mean, this it's not happening or not about to happen anymore. It is now happening. And governments like China, for example, have been in, involved in this, in using industrial policy, government intervention, government support, government regulation, uh, government ownership, in many cases in China, to advance the uh, the clean energy economy, batteries and electric vehicles and 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 you know supply chains and all of that, and and so now where we're we're at is is Europe Europe got the message quite a bit before North America, and now you know President Biden woke up sometime in 2020 and said, oh my goodness, not only is the United States not number one in these things anymore, we're not even number two. And who knows, maybe we're not even number three. And that's, you know, for the U.S., that's un unacceptable. So he made it a campaign uh, promise uh, back in 2020 that the, the U.S. would catch up. And the Inflation Reduction Act is deliberate industrial policy. It is the reintroduction, uh, the reapplication of industrial policy to the emerging clean energy economy. And batteries are at the heart of it. And that's one of the reasons I want to talk to you, because while there are plenty of, of manufacturers in the lithium ion space, that's now become a mature technology and it's scaling up. And, you know, there are companies all over the world who are doing that. And, and, and many are investing in North America. It's outside of that space that you're interested in, that you work in, as I understand it, looking for new chemistries, new technologies, new startups that Volta uh, can bring its process to the fore and then both invest in these startups and support them. Have I got that right, James? Yeah, yeah. So that, that you know, that's precisely um, that, that's precisely it. That we're really looking beyond um, 
the raw materials themselves to 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 the technology although that can of course you know involve raw materials if we're looking at new let's say cathode chemistries as you point out or even new processing methods to reduce the cost of that cathode active material um or you know similarly as well as cost you know particularly a focus in europe is reducing the environmental footprint um of those the the, the those kind of produced materials so um although volta isn't directly kind of investing in in raw materials um, ourselves you know we we still certainly have to be aware of those um developing supply chains um and and the potential impacts that that has um on our you know on our investments and uh, what's been really interesting to me actually is some of the reaction that we're seeing in the market um as a result of the ira um particularly um from europe uh so we had you know recently the 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 european kind of commission um reconsidering its positioning around the uh, battery directive and its, its kind of approach to raw materials because it feels that it is now being um somewhat um impacted um by the changing supply chains um that the ira the ira has has catalyzed and you know what i think the, the most obvious example of that and i think probably what the european commission was was referring to was the announcement from northvolt that it may reconsider its some of its future investments in europe instead placing them in the us in order to take advantage of these very lucrative production tax credits that are available and potentially these these high um grants that are out there so you know the result of that is um europe uh is is reviewing its state aid rules and and uh, you know those who are kind of familiar with europe will always know that um will know that europe has always been um very eager to maintain um fair competition amongst its member states and and, and that's why um state aid rules have been so 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 important so to hear that they may look at those again in order to kind of further promote the battery supply chain is to me fascinating um i think it's fair to say well i i have described the inflation reduction act as basically the declaration of uh economic war clean energy uh, economic war uh by the us on europe and asia pacific and i and i think the 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 reactions in europe that you're talking about by the european commission that you're talking about kind of you know, back up that ar- that argument. But one of the things I find fascinating, and I, and I want to very shortly, we'll get into a discussion, maybe of one or two of the startups that you're supporting, what they do and why they do it, and and so on. Uh, but I was in doing my interview prep. Of course, I was trolling your your web your company's website page, uh, looking for ideas and interesting things to talk about. And here's a a, a line that caught my attention. Uh, so Walter works to, to validate transformative technologies and businesses through, and here we go, this is the important one, through collaboration with leading institutions, including its research agreement with Argonne National Library or Laboratory. What in the world is a venture capital company doing partnering with an American national laboratory? Can you just tell us how that works? Yes, yeah, certainly. So, so I think it's it's worth just um, you know starting off by pointing out that the founders of Volta, um, Jeff Chamberlain, and who, who's our CEO, and Dave Schroeder, who's our CTO, they were both at Argonne National Lab before starting Volta, and were working within the battery industry and kind of saw that there was a there was going to be a funding gap between the research that the U.S. government was supporting 
and the um, needs of companies to actually commercialize that that technology. So take it through that commercial scale up. Um, so they, they they had an idea to to start a, a venture capital fund that would bridge that gap. But part of what they also understood is that when you're working on hard technologies rather than let's say the the kind of software that VCs have have, have been investing in over the last twenty years, um, when you're working on these hard technologies, you need a way to be able to validate the claims of the the, the startups. And so one way of doing that is by having this um, research collaboration where we can use Argonne National Lab to help validate um, some of the claims of the, of the startups that we're working with. I, that leads us into a discussion of the way America practices uh, industrial policy. Because I was reading Mariana Mazzucato's um, book, The Entrepreneurial State, and she made a very kind of a little, uh, struck me as a little funny, but a very interesting uh, uh, observation. And that is, you know, America, Americans have talked about free enterprise and free markets and capitalism and all that nonsense for, for decades and decades. And I call it nonsense because as Mazzucato points out, what they do, what they say and what they do are two very different things. And one of the things that the uh, the U.S. government and uh, state governments do to a lesser extent is they invest in innovation. Good Lord, the amount of money that the Americans put into the national laboratory system, that they put into basic science and, and research, and then in the, to some extent, the commercialization of the, tech, of the technologies that come out of that R&D is nothing short of amazing. And, and it, I was intrigued when you said that you identified, or your, your, the, the founders of your company uh, identified that there was a gap uh, where there wasn't enough capital to support the commercialization of, of these innovations that were coming out of, out of the laboratory. And that seems to me to be a classic example, a great story about how the American system works and, and where government sort of seeds innovation uh, in the early stages and, and then private once it's been de-risked and it's ready to be, begin commercialization, then private capital steps in and, and shepherds it the rest of the way, presumably to you know, some sort of success in the marketplace. First of all, have I got that right? And B, any insights you've got into how that works and why it works so well? So, so yeah, I, you know, I, I think you have got it right. Um, I, I can't necessarily say, why it works so well you know i i certainly think um coming from the um uh, the english standpoint um or the european standpoint perhaps that you know i think there's certainly more of an entrepreneurial um spirit in the us so there's more people who are willing to kind of take that um startup risk um and you know the, there is a risk appetite from us investors because they've seen um you know these these unicorns um, and so they're they're willing to, to to kind of take a risk on on some of these technologies to help develop it, in the hope that they get that greater, you know, reward at the end. What I would say though is, and and particularly in the hard tech space, and and what I should kind of clarify about the the, the founders of Volta, is it's not just um, that, well, it's not necessarily that they said, realized it wasn't capital, but they realized it wasn't educated capital that would be able to properly identify the risks with scaling this technology 
and help to de-risk that. And I think that's really important because particularly as the battery market grows and investment into this sector grows, if money is not being spent um, smartly, that's when you'll end up having um, a lot of money being poured into to perhaps wasted assets, into technology that is is, is dead end, um, or indeed, um, you know, you, you may find um, as you know, I think is 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 perhaps kind of evident from the last couple of years that um, you have retail investors who are um, burnt, and you know, I think that's perhaps kind of the case that we've seen with a lot of these these spacs that we had in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one that are now not trading so high. And, you know, I think a lot of investors that have got into that are not satisfied with their investment. And, and part of that is probably because they didn't understand the development level of those companies and the amount of risk that was still there that needed to um, to be addressed in order to, to kind of commercialize the technologies. That's a really good point uh, about de-risking technologies and about educating investors. And I would I come at this from a little different angle from the Canadian perspective, where governments don't always, don't understand the risks and don't understand this, this, these spaces. And, and I see the Canadian government struggling with this to you know it it looks out at china and it looks out at europe and then it looks across the you know the 49th parallel the border between canada and the us and says oh my goodness okay everybody now is is all in on clean on the clean energy economy we need to carve out our space for for canada and we want to bring this new you know this revamped idea of industrial policy into our policy mix and what does that mean? Well, you know, for the, a big government like that, it means money, you know, pots of money that it can it can grant or or lend uh, to to uh, to companies. And they've, without getting into details, it looks like they've already made a couple of mistakes and potentially a couple of big mistakes because they didn't understand what they were doing. They, they didn't understand the the the, uh, the uh, industry that they were granting money to and the effect that that would have. And it speaks to taking a more strategic approach. And that's where I want to get into Volta because I was looking at your, again, we're looking at your website and I see you've got this very interesting little diagram here that talks about how you you know partner at the very beginning like at the you know in the R&D stage things are still in the lab still on the bench and then as they as they start to come out are ready to come out of the lab you know Volta gets involved and you help de-risk that all through the rest of the process and i would imagine for your company having people like yourself with a doctorate in in uh you know electrochemistry having that expertise to bring to the table what advantage does it confer to the investor, to the comp, to the company that you're investing in, and so on? Yeah, well, and in fact, it's a, it's a good point that you you kind of raised um, in that Volta's model is is indeed kind of largely focused around having um, people with technical skills and knowledge uh, and teaching them about finance rather than taking um, people from the financial industry and trying to teach them about technology. So, 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 so I think that's you know so, so certainly a kind of an important differentiator that you need to you need to be able to really understand the science to, to kind of de-risk a lot of these technologies. Um, so I think I think that's um, yes, yeah, so, 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 so certainly something to kind of point out. And then sorry, I, I I've actually forgotten the second point. I was too focused on that. Uh, maybe you could repeat it, Markham. 
Well, I think it's this idea of the bringing that technical expertise to bear on, on the process of taking the startup and its new process or technology or whatever it's got, it's innovation, and and taking it through the process. You know, you, you're going to do a, a demonstration project, then you're going to do a pilot project, then you're going to get into, you know, scale up to, to do commercial production, and then you're going to scale beyond that uh, as you move aggressively into the market. And all of that takes capital. All of that, and, and that capital has to be smart capital, as you say, that has, that where the investors are educated and there's some technical expertise brought to bear to, to help the company through the process. Uh, tell us about that. Yes, yeah, so certainly. And, and, and actually, again, this goes back to to, to our founders. Um, so Jeff Chamberlain and, and Dave Schroeder, who I've mentioned, both came from the semiconductor industry and, and they've seen that those kind of product development cycles. So they understand, uh, you know, a lot of that qualification process. Our, our chief investment officer, um, Zander Arkin, comes from the 30 years or 30 plus years in the energy industry and spent a lot of that time in kind of project finance. So it's a really, I, you know, I think part of helping to kind of de-risk that and take it through is, is, is understanding how these commercial developments have happened in other comparable industries and, you know, being able to take those learnings from those industries and apply it to the, the, the battery industry. Now, there are obviously kind of some differences there. And I think the kind of most obvious one is, is that, um, of course, in the, the semiconductor industry, you had this um, fabulous fab approach where you would have, you know, companies designing the semiconductors and then fabricators kind of building them. Whereas in the battery industry, uh, and sorry, you know, so I should point out that I've, that obviously kind of helped startups because they could design new chips, send send the files off, get them produced quite quickly. In the battery industry, it's slightly in, it's slightly different because you don't really have those contract manufacturers. So, as a startup, it's you know a slightly different game uh, actually. And, and and you know this is something that we've learned um, kind of over the time that we've been working in the industry is that increasingly startups have to be able to stand up their own kind of initial pilot production facilities and again that becomes very capital intensive and and again kind of hammers home that point that you need to to, to understand the industry understand scale up etc to be able to move forward with this so it's it's you know it's it's um it's very interesting and and, and i think every kind of solution has its, its, its problems and 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 advantages uh, and so, you know, as, as much knowledge as I think the team has, we're also kind of learning as we go, as we come up against um, new problems. So it's 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 just an incredibly exciting industry at the moment. Give us, if you can talk about one of your most exciting uh, companies that you're working with and give us a little insight into how all this works in practice. Yeah, so, so let me give that a think, you know, well, we don't. We don't uh, want you. We don't want yeah, you to be uh, revealing yeah, trade, I, I, trade secrets. I, uh, I, I, I think. I, I think it's probably best if I don't touch on that one, um, just because I. Yeah, I think without. Sure. Fair enough. Well, look. Let's yeah, let's yeah, yeah. let's take this take this approach then. Uh, can you can you tell us maybe based on experience, but without revealing uh, you know company name or, or or details, roughly how the process works. What and what some of the challenges are and that sort of thing. Yeah, certainly. So, um, you know, generally, kind of what we what, what, the way that we start is um, 
it depends on the the stage of the company. If we start with a company that is still um, de-risking the technology at the lab, once Walter's made an investment, um, one of our technical team will then be the kind of point of contact for that company. We'll work very closely with them, helping to kind of address any um, scale-up challenges that they're, 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 they're coming across. That may be, um, you know, the uh, kind of more simple uh, idea of, you know, scaling from the kilogram to the ton scale, where you can come up against kind of yield problems or, or kind of changes to the, the kinetics in, in, in larger systems. Once we've kind of de-risked that um, lab scale um, approach, you know, it moves over to the, uh, let's say, the kind of commercial um, side of the team. And there it's then really thinking about how are you structuring your business model so that you can get OEMs um, or, or off-takers kind of comfortable with the, the technology and the business that you've built. Particularly for startups, um, you know, that are looking to enter the the electric vehicle space, that that's really important because not only do you have to have a technology that works, but you also need to be viewed as being financially stable um, so that the OEM can can use you as a trusted supplier without being concerned that in you know two years time you may not be able to um, upkeep your warranty conditions, for example. Um, so we're, we're, we're kind of you know thinking about that quite a lot. And then of course, the other side of that is as I've mentioned, is that increasingly these startups will have to stand up at least a portion of their own um, manufacturing capacity, whether that's cell manufacturing, pack manufacturing, you know, or, or new materials. And, you know, that's where being able to kind of understand project financing becomes very important because if you, you know, can understand that, you can help to de-risk that capital. So you can get capital for your startups at a lower cost. And so really at Volta, we're, we're thinking across that entire value chain and, and trying to identify, you know, anywhere across that spectrum where we can add um, some value that is otherwise being being overlooked or that those startups haven't come to terms with themselves. Well, let's talk then about uh, new technologies that are coming onto the scene. And, and you and I, James, we've had conversations in the past about how dynamic and innovative the battery space is right now. And it's, seems to me looking at it from the outside that that accelerated even more in uh, 2022. And it looks like there are going to be a number of chemistries, and I just did an interview with uh, the CEO of Salient, Salient Energy, uh, which is bringing a, a zinc ion battery to the market for stationary storage. And I wonder how many more of those kinds of, you know, interesting and innovative new chemistries, and then other parts of the, the battery technology chain uh, are out there. And um, just your general impressions about you know, are are we close to seeing some major breakthroughs that are going to change things like, uh, you know, energy density, uh, range in electric vehicles, uh, charge time, safety, that sort of thing? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, you know, uh, <laughs> I think we are close to that. Um, but I, th I think, you know, cl cl close is obviously um, uh, something that's kind of, you know, quite personal. So, if I think about, let's say, energy density, you know, I think in the next two to two to four years, we'll see cell level energy density start to um, kind of significantly cross that 300 
watt hour per kilogram mark, particularly as we see more silicon being added into, in, in, you know, into anodes. So I think that's that's coming. And then uh, alongside that, as you have more silicon in, in, in the anode, you also have kind of secondary effects, such as the ability to charge at higher rates. So as you have more silicon, that could lead to, to kind of faster charging. But of course, you have to have the, the you know, the charging um, network out there. I think, though, for you know, for me, the things that seem to be, or the technologies that are perhaps slightly closer to adoption, are probably um, focused more around, let's say, the kind of pack design um, and chart, you know, charging algorithms as well. So we're seeing a couple, a lot of companies nowadays that have come up with new um, algorithms that can enable fast charging without degrading the battery cell. And, and to me, this is just, you know, really smart stuff because all you're doing is changing the way that you're putting the current or the, the voltage into the cell. Um, and you can, you know, increase the charging rate by five, 10 times without any kind of negative impact on, on, on wow. the cell. And you can imagine that the, yeah, the, the, the impl- implementation of algorithms is, is much easier than implementing new cathodes um, materials etc so, so 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 i think advances like that could be coming to the market sooner um but you know i think it's also the, the other point that i haven't touched on here is um you know when we talk about commercialization i think in general um you know most people are thinking commercialization into electric vehicles but it's always worth remembering that the qualification period for eb oems is anywhere from kind of three to five or six years so even if you have a technology today that that works, that you can produce at a commercial scale, it may not be adopted for another kind of five to six years in the, the, the EV market. But there are lots of other beachhead markets that are worth um, looking into. So the defense market would be one of those where, you know, for example, you may have a, a, a technology that has a very high energy density, but it's still early stage. And so the cycle life is lower. Well, actually in the, the, the defense market, cycle life isn't the biggest factor that people are concerned about, it's energy density. So you may be able to enter that market earlier than, than, than the EV market. You know, similarly, the stationary storage market is, is, is again an interesting one. And I think you know, there we're gonna see companies like um, Freya developing 24Ms technology, which will be commercialized in stationary storage you know, before it is in, in the um, passenger EV market. So, so I think it's um, you know the, 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 there's a lot of interesting technologies um, out there. It's it's hard to say you know what's coming in the near term because it depends on on your view of the near term versus mine, um, but also which markets the companies are trying to enter into. Now, uh, again, while I was doing my interview prep, I found an article on your LinkedIn feed of all places, uh, Wall Street Journal article from recently, and it talked about a different business model or a different approach to EV charging. So instead of having uh, bigger batteries with longer range, and I think I saw a uh, a deal, uh, there was an agreement announced this summer between CATL, the Chinese uh, battery manufacturer, and Zeker, which is a, a new startup, they had a thousand kilometer battery. So, that, I mean, that would be a significant increase, almost a doubling of the average uh, EV range today. But the article, the West, the, the Wall Street Journal argue, article argued for less range, maybe even you know half of what uh, would be acceptable today or the average today, but much faster charging times. 
So if you had, say, two or 300 kilometers, which would be, you know, fine for most people's commute and grocery getting and running the kids to soccer. And and then you if you needed to go out on do for longer trips, you could charge it up in five minutes, charge it up in 10 minutes. And then the batteries can become smaller. The batteries become cheaper. And the, the key innovation here is the ability to charge them much, much faster. Hey, what's your take on that? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's you know, I, I generally think of this um, in, in two different ways. And I think there's two different schools of thought here, really. You know, what one certainly is the, the smaller batteries with faster, faster charging. Uh, and then you have the, which I would kind of consider the newer school of thought. And then the traditional, which, as you said, is having bigger batteries that, you know, to, to take you longer distances. Now, from a um, supply chain perspective, uh, you know, raw material supply cost perspective, you know, certainly having that faster charging ability would make sense. And and that's the direction that, you know, I think the, the industry would probably go down um, if the electricity grid could support it. But I think this is, you know, today where there's the real bottleneck, there's not the ability to be able to build that many, not the ability, it, it takes time to build that many fast chargers. Uh, and you also have to be able to, to back up the electricity network uh, in order to support that. You know, if we're talking about um, a 350 kilowatt charge, you only have to have three vehicles connected and you need a megawatt connection. Now you're starting to see these these um, EV charging forecourts where you have, in some cases, you know, tens or even you know probably not hundreds yet, but certainly kind of tens of charges, and you start thinking that's going to require you know a, a multi megawatt connection, which is just pretty difficult to do, and so that that that's one aspect that I think that actually there's um, you know infrastructure investment that would need to be addressed in order to enable that. Um, the battery technology would also need to kind of catch up with that. Uh, you know, I think that process is, 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 you know, in development at the moment, as we've talked about, um, but it's the, the, the grid infrastructure that is, that is lacking. The other consideration that I have there is, you know, to, to, to me, that is a battery idealist's point of view. This is people who understand electric vehicles, who understand the problems and the constraints going forward. But for your everyday consumer, and, you know, if we think about, um, consumer adoption curves, we're at the beginning of that S-curve today. So you've had your um, non-price sensitive um, early adopters adopting electric, electric vehicles. As vehicles have come down in price, you then have your price sensitive early adopters adopting. Um, but then the, the kind of last segments of people you have to convert to electric vehicles are people who don't want an electric vehicle. They don't care about it. They don't care what's inside it. They just want to get from A to B and they're going to be the hardest people to convert over to electric because they also need to, they will want to see electric vehicles that can match the performance of their current internal combustion engine vehicles today. And so that's why I think even if we do move to a, a future where there is fast charging and that takes up you know, a, a certain uh, segment of the, the electric vehicle um, industry, there are going to be people out there who just fundamentally want to have a battery with three, four, 500 miles range, because that's what they're used to. And without that, they are worried about that, um, you know, one case a year where they might run out of run out of charge. 
But, you know, again, the, the, the counterfactual to that is, um, you know, how, how often have you run out of gas? We don't do it because we're aware of it. And so, you know, I, I, it's, it, it's a very difficult situation to kind of... Uh, have a you know a, a nuanced view about this i think a lot of people think it's going to go one way or the other but i think the reality is you you have a balance between the two approaches um and it's up to the the industry and consumers to to find out where that balance fits it seems to me that the a, the electric vehicle industry the way the batteries industry is going and then the way the ev industry is going that there will be more opportunity for segmentation. So if I want a car that has a 200 kilometer range, but charges up in five minutes, I can have that car and I can probably have it at a lower cost than a, a big, you know, SUV, like a, a Hummer or some something, whatever, an SUV. People like SUVs and trucks in North America. Or I can have that with 500 kilometers of range if I'm willing to, to pay a premium because that fits my needs better. But there will be a there will be a, a wide range of vehicles with wide range of of at a wide wide range of prices with a wide range of of charge, you know, battery capacity and, and all of that. But that seems to me to be what the, the, the market's really good at is delivering all of those things. And it seems to be, we're, we're not there yet because we're in the early stages of the development of the EV industry. And, you know, we've, we've talked about some of the technologies that are are still emerging and maturing and so on. And and we're in the early stages of this. Maybe 10 years from now, we'll see see it segmented, segmented the way I'm talking about. It. But it seems to me that's the way the industry is going. And But that's a really good thing. So we're not all stuffed into, you know, uh, SUVs or pickup trucks. No, no, indeed. And in fact, um, you know, I, I'm in um, Italy at the moment, and it's quite the opposite here, where the the favoured cars are small, <clears throat> sometimes just two seaters, because parking is such a nightmare that people want to have small cars that are easy to get around in, and you can easily find somewhere to, to park. So I think you're right, the market will decide, you know, what's needed. And it is going to be a range, it's not going to be one size that fits all. Um, you know, I think the reason why it does seem like it's one size fits all um, at the moment is just because the cost of batteries have been so high that the economic tipping point um, for different vehicle segments comes in different years. By the time we get to 2030, 2035, almost every vehicle segment should be cheaper. The electric version should be cheaper than the internal combustion engine version. And therefore, you will have that choice again. But I think it's in the intermediate years as you, you have prices coming down and slowly different segments reaching parity that it seems like there's there's less choice and 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 less segmentation out there. Uh, fair enough. And, and and you know, if you look back to the uh, the early years of the auto industry, uh, uh, you know, when Henry Ford brought out the Model T, he said you can have it in any color you want as long as it's black. Right. <laughs> no, ex well, exactly right. right. And, and, and you know, so so you know, in the in the early stages, the there's less less choice and and less segmentation, and then over time, look at where we are, you know, 100 years later, and and it's it's very it's very different, even on the internal combustion engine side. Uh, it just seems to me 
that the uh, electric vehicle lends itself more to that. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see all sorts of, you know, small companies, small, small to medium sized factors, uh, manufacturers in competing with the, the OEMs, you know, and they, and the small guys, you know, bring to this, you know, specialized vehicles, uh, you know, to market in a way that, that uh, couldn't be done with a, a gas powered uh, or diesel powered a vehicle. But like James, I, I've taken up a lot of your time today. I really appreciate this. Always enjoy your insights. Uh, we're only a few days away from, from Christmas. So Merry Christmas to you and your family. Enjoy your vacation or whatever it is you're doing in Italy. Perfect. Thanks very much, Markham. Always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, yeah, I look forward to, to kind of discussing the industry further in 2023.